Hello, this is Jaya Allen Aftar. Hello, this is Jaya Allen Aftar with Broad Circle. Very happy to be here with you today on Sylvia Global Media Network. Um, Sylvia Global connects women via conversations with via video and radio, and Broad Circle connects women in Los Angeles around the topic of money and power for women. So we are a uh, top-level female women business networking organization in Los Angeles and kind of Southern California, really. And we are all about driving revenue and growing capital for women. So the only thing we talk about is connecting women, talking about money, talking about power. And today we've got a terrific panel for you today. It's our panel of the women of Silicon Beach. And I know that sounds like uh, a bathing suit contest, but it's actually not. It's it's a panel of women who are CEOs and presidents of their organizations. We are in Los Angeles, and in Los Angeles, we've got quite a tech phenomenon brewing, and they call it Silicon Beach. Uh, in fact, there was a recent Forbes article that said uh, that it could be that Los Angeles will outpace Silicon Valley as a tech startup capital. We have 1,400 startups in our uh, area, 15 accelerated, accelerators, and 28 incubators. And um, a number of the uh, companies are led by women leaders, women CEOs, women presidents. Not a lot, but a few, and we've got a few of the most terrific ones here with us today. Um, and I wanted to introduce our uh, speakers today on the radio show, and we have with us today Julie McMeaton, who is Vice President of Investor Relations for Demand Media. Julie is uh, part of the Broad Circle organization. She's president of what we call our Executive Broads Group, and Julie really has produced this event uh, for us, which will actually be happening live in Los Angeles on May 22nd uh, between the hours of 4 and 7 on the west side of Los Angeles. So if you're local and you can make it, that's great. If not, you'll have to settle for listening to us on the radio. We also have with us April Spencer, a tax partner with Ernst & Young. April is uh, the executive leader at Ernst & Young in charge of their Entrepreneurial Women Awards. And uh, she and Ernst & Young have provided great support to Broad Circle. In fact, Ernst & Young has been a corporate sponsor of Broad Circle for many years now. We have with us uh, Therese Tucker, CEO and founder of Blackline Systems. Uh, Therese is one of our CEOs of our Silicon Beach companies. Her company has been around for a while and has significant revenue. Um, she'll tell us a little more about that when we start talking about uh, the business issues. We have Courtney Nichols-Gold, co-founder and co-CEO of Smarty Pants Vitamins. Uh, Smarty Pants uh, is an earlier stage company, but Courtney is no stranger to uh, building businesses and is a, is a serial entrepreneur and a veteran of building and starting businesses. So as you all know, technology is not a uh, very uh, female-ridden environment. There are not a lot of women who rise to the top in the tech world and 
the rank and file is even low on uh, on women. We wanted to do this event in Los Angeles to kind of highlight one what's going on in Los Angeles and also showcase some women who have really risen to the top of our local technology scene. Um, Julie, I wanted to ask you uh, if you could tell me you really had a passion about putting this panel together. It was actually your idea to do it. Uh, what really made you want to highlight this phenomena and bring these entrepreneurs to the table to talk to our women leaders uh, and, uh, you know, provide a forum here on the radio as well? Sure. Thanks, Daria. Um, yeah, I'm very passionate about technology and, and women leadership. Um, I actually started my career at the Nasdaq stock market and was uh, working there in the 90s when the first tech boom started and saw the tremendous uh, employment, wealth creation, and growth from these innovative companies and what could happen with technology. And I think the technology industry is a very important competitive advantage for our country. Um, focusing more in on Los Angeles in this panel, I, I really do think it's imperative that Los Angeles fosters a strong tech community. We, we have a unique combination of creative talent and now digital talent that's springing up, and I think it's going to be an outstanding long-term competitive advantage for our city. So I personally am very excited to learn more about women who are starting up these businesses, who are, t who are taking advantage of technology to be the next set of leaders, and hearing their stories and having them inspire other women um, was very important to me. That's great. Thank you so much. And April, uh, you know, I really am so thrilled to have Ernst & Young as a partner for Broad Circle uh, because of their support of women's leadership in general. Um, I'm thinking about Ernst & Young's involvement with Catalyst in terms of trying to get more women on boards and so many of the other things that you do to support women's leadership as a whole, but you're particularly involved with the program that supports female entrepreneurs. Could you tell us a little about that, April? Sure. The The Entrepreneurial Winning Women program is a, it's a leadership development program for women entrepreneurs. So we look around and we say, you know, we really believe that the growth of the economy is going to come from entrepreneurs. And, you know, with 46% of privately held companies being owned by women, you know, we know women are a powerful force in our economy, yet what we find is women don't tend to scale up their businesses as, as frequently as men. Businesses owned by men are three and a half times as likely to, to reach that million dollars in annual revenue than women, businesses owned by women. And we know that, you know, you need cash to grow your business. So, you know, we're passionate, passionate about helping women succeed. Uh, we serve as trusted advisors to help them achieve their goals and Oftentimes we do that by connecting women entrepreneurs to a network of advisors, um, helping them access the capital they need to grow their business and to really scale up. That's great and uh, so needed. Um, as we all know, um, I think 6 or 7% of VC-funded companies are women-led. Venture capital-funded uh, companies are women-led. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that we've talked about in our group is that um, the evolution of women um, as leaders in the business community and in the technology community, whether it's tech or biotech, you know, there are now women that have worked perhaps 
in building several businesses. Maybe they weren't the, the, the lead person. Maybe they weren't the CEO, but they've seen kind of the life cycle of companies and particularly in particularly technology companies from seed, early stage, and many of them have been in positions where they've seen an exit actually occur at a company that they were involved with. Some of those women have stayed in the entrepreneurial game and now are leading companies and are CEOs. And um, Courtney, your company is a great story and your background is a great story. Uh, I wanted you to share that. You've lived in New York and in Los Angeles, and, you know, you're a mom. You have two children, and you're your CEO of a company that's consumer products. Tell us a little about kind, your evolution and your company and where you're at today with Smarty Pants. Well, thank you. Your lead-in, actually, was quite great. That was That was very much my story, I think. So, you know, I did. I started in New York. I was very fortunate to be there in 1993 and 94 when the, when, when the Internet was really becoming a consumer-facing opportunity and really have been in tech and Internet startups uh, since then and feel very grateful to have been in New York during that time. There was a lot going on. Um, so I very much enjoyed building businesses. And like you said, I had actually been kind of the person behind the person um, and always loved building things and was really looking for the next thing I was passionate about. And, and I have found that the businesses that I think that succeed are the ones that typically come from some organic need, right, like a problem that you've seen yourself that you think there's a better solution to. Uh, and that's really how I ended up at Smarty Pants, even though, you know, I didn't spend my life in vitamins. Uh, you know, my previous company, Clear, was a fast pass for airport security. Before that, I was in Internet advertising at CNET, uh, and mail, running mail.com, um, but but we had seen this issue come up for a lot of people, including ourselves, which is that uh, we knew that nutrient deficiency is a real problem across really all demographics, uh, adults, kids, uh, really across the spectrum, really because of our lifestyle, because of the way we eat, and honestly, the soil itself doesn't give us, you know, what it used to. And the solution that the industry had come up with were, you know, this experience that I'm sure a lot of people uh, listening have had where you walk into a grocery store or Whole Foods and you stand in front of a wall of vitamins and you just think, I really want to help my kids, you know, get the best start that they can and to be as healthy as they can, and I'm standing in front of this wall of 20,000 vitamins and I have no idea where to start. And it just seemed to us that we had made it way too complicated, uh, too expensive, too hard to be healthy and to make sure that our whole family is healthy and so we wanted to see if there was a better way because really in this country uh, and now really the world over, um, obesity and malnutrition are really one of the greatest threats and, and really do threaten to bankrupt our country um, from the health care cost burden that results from that. So we set out to create uh, the only all-in-one vitamin. And we did that because we really had seen that uh, ourselves and with our friends. And the response has been overwhelming and that's why we now make them for adults and you know, across the board because it really was was a problem. And for me, L.A. has actually been a fantastic place to come to, and I've only been here now for four years. But having been in New York when the Internet started, but still not in Silicon Valley, um, you know, already had a chip on its shoulder, um, it's been fantastic because I think here you do attract a different kind of thinker. I think it's very monetary-focused uh, in New York, and it was I had fantastic success there, and I'm really grateful 
for it. But in L.A., there are more creative, expansive thinkers. And, and I think as you see the shift to entrepreneurship, it's actually a phenomenal place to be. Uh, we think it's the best place to start our business, particularly if you're in wellness. California is a nice place to, to make your make your products. I feel very grateful to be here. And, and we focused online because I do think even the model in our industry, which is selling in stores on shelf, is kind of broken. We, we work in an industry that's very research-driven. People like to know before they take something like a vitamin supplement how it works and what it's for. And so we find that research is driven online. And we have grown very, very quickly and spent a lot less money than our competitors because we focused on dominance online, that if you're searching, you know, vitamins or gummy vitamins, that our name comes up um, and that on Amazon we were the top-selling product in our category, uh, and that's really been our focus. So I think the online platform really is very, very unique in the ability to allow people starting companies to reach consumers and have a conversation without spending an enormous amount of capital and to find out what works and, and what doesn't. So we're very grateful to be online and, and certainly grateful to be here in L.A. You know, Courtney, I, I loved the picture that you painted, okay, because um, I'm a mom of three children, and when you were talking about standing in front of the wall of vitamins at Whole Foods, I've done that. I mean, there's not a mom that's in my circle who hasn't done that. And you go there and, you know, I have to read labels for no artificial colors or preservatives because of my kids' issues. And so, uh, you know, given the fact that I am a working mom who runs Broad Circle and does other things, I typically can't really do that shopping uh, in the store because I just don't have the time to put on my glasses and read all the labels. So I end up doing most of my shopping on the Internet now. I mean, pretty much, uh, you know, a large percentage of the products that come into my home other than, you know, food and produce now are bought online. And so you yeah. kind of hit a couple points that really any, you know, you know female with kids – uh, listening to this is going to relate to. Um, well, but even, I think, even those yeah. people that, that don't have children, I would just say you'd be amazed. I mean, really now more of our business comes from adults, um, you know, with or without kids, but buying for themselves because the issues that come up with kids are the same for people, you know, no matter what stage of life they're in. Uh, I think your point is very well taken, really across the board. And you're really selling a consumer product, Smarty Pants Vitamin. It's a consumer product, but the technology platform is really the fact that your the bulk of your sales are online. Is that the well? Uh, not. I would say we certainly we sell online, but I think it's actually our competitive advantage. So most of our marketing, the way we built the brand, is through online SEM you know, search engine marketing, search engine optimization. Um, we focus on producing content, which is something, you know, we entered an extremely competitive market with very well-established brands. But those guys built their companies offline, and they don't do marketing the way that we do marketing. And so I would say that for us, the online actually is the key to our success, even if we sell in Whole Foods, right? That what's different about us is that we dominate online. You know, out of 2.5 million products, in the health and beauty category on Amazon, our products are in the top 200. And we did that in an extremely short period of time, 
spending, I mean, literally next to nothing on marketing. And that's because we produce content that's about health. We focus on the people we affiliate with, but we really drive awareness online because we know that's where shoppers go first, to your point. And Amazon, these places make it so easy. You know, and it's important to know your audience. For us, we know that people aren't going to, to a vitamin. They're not going to go online to a toothpaste store to buy toothpaste and to a vitamin. You know, as more of this moves online, they're going to go to a consolidator like Amazon or drugstore.com or diapers.com or whoever they already have an account with because it makes it so easy, right? Online commerce, you don't have to reenter your information every time. You know, they, they've made it very easy for you. And that's, it's important to know your product, right? Our product is a commodity product that's bought every month. And so we're going to do more through online retailers than we will on our own site, although we continue on our own site because we like having that communication. We like having direct feedback from customers, especially when we launch a new product. You know, what do you like? What do you not like? What do you have questions about? Um, but for us, I would say it's as much about the marketing that we're able to do online and our ability to get a voice in the game, even though we were small, against the big players. When you, you know, if you go into a store, you might see 10 bottles, 10 different products by one brand. But online, we, look, we don't look any different than a brand that's you know, generating $100 million in revenue. We really don't. And so that was a competitive advantage for us, and I think it's why we grew so quickly without having to spend as much capital. Yeah, it's very competitive to get on the shelves. Now, Courtney, let me ask you, is there a personal story for you on getting to the I, – I, I understand why you do, you know the, your product is good and superior and meets the needs, but like for me, every time I need something for my family or for my kids, I feel like going out and starting that business when I can't find it in the market. <laughs> is there a right. story like that for you? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's why – I think that's why we started with the kids' market because I think, you know, parents would all say this, right? You will do things for your kids that you might not take the time to do for yourself. So True. I think in terms of a, mo- a motivated population, that that population is so research-driven. They're very, And we have a very high-quality product. You know, our cost of goods is higher than most of our other competitors because we knew that we would win if we were transparent and that we focus on every single ingredient being the highest quality, the most bioavailable, meaning your body knows how to use it. And so the story for us was our own frustration, just what you described, standing on things, being like, this is way too hard. Like, it should not be this hard. We can put a man on the moon, we can go to Mars, and yet we, we cannot find a way to make it easy to take your vitamins every day. I mean, that just seems crazy. And yet we know that it's a really important thing. And so, you know, that was really the motivation for us. It's just, like you said, you see a problem, and I'm a builder, I love building stuff. I really do. And so it seems like, and Gordon, um, my co-founder, is a you know, serial entrepreneur as well. So we, you know, we see a problem. We just look around and see if anyone else has addressed it. And if we don't think they have, uh, and we think it's a high leverage problem, something that affects a lot of people, then you know, that's kind of where my interest tends to go. Well, that's a great segue to Therese. Because I know, Therese Tucker, you as CEO and founder of Blackline Systems, you are also uh, your blood test positive for that entrepreneurial uh, gene and trait, and uh, you bootstrap Blackline Systems and built it up to. Is it a thirty-eight million dollar business now? Uh, we expect to do somewhere between thirty-eight and forty million this year, Daria. Thank you. Wow, wow, that's a that's a great story, and really that. Uh, developed for you over a 10 or 11 peri- year period. Tell us your story, Therese. Uh, 
I happily. Thank you, Daria. Um, my background is actually technology, and still there are so few women who take programming classes who um, have that background, but it, it really makes starting a company easier because you can you can do the things rather than pay somebody else to do them, which of course keeps your costs down. I actually founded Blackline in 2001 after working at SunGuard and a company that was acquired by SunGuard for a number of years before that. And it actually started out as a company that was going to be uh, building wealth management software. But that's a very difficult market to crack and we did not have any funding. In fact, we didn't even know how to get funding at that point in time. In 2004, late 2004, early 2005, one of our wealth management software clients, uh, the First National Bank of Nebraska, asked us about a completely different area, and that was in the area of, of accounting and around closing their books each month and tracking account reconciliations. And they asked us if we could build something for them. And given that uh, we were sort of all starving to death uh, trying to do the wealth management software, we jumped on that. Turned out that it was uh, an area of the market where there really were no tools that did what they were asking us to do. And it turns out that every single company out there has a financial close virtually each and every month, and most of them do it pretty inefficiently. They use a lot of spreadsheets. They sort of cobble different things together. They don't really have a good process. And the reason that that's important is you close your books and those things need to be accurate. Otherwise, your financial results are not accurate. And so it's it's highly critical, but it's an intensely manual labor pro labor intensive process if you don't have some kind of tools to actually use for it. And so that that's where Blackline sort of switched focus in 2005, and that's where our focus has been ever since. So in 2005, we pretty much completely changed direction, ran out of money, nearly starved to death, and uh, just little by little grew it to where it is today. Well, you know, I think talking to so many entrepreneurs, you know, uh, you'll you'll hear those stories about, uh, you know, starting up, fits and starts, starvation and hallelujahs, you know, just that whole cycle, uh, you know, the desperation of the lows and the, you know, incredible joy of the highs. That must be why you love being an entrepreneur <laughs> in some respect. But also, you didn't really take any money. Even though you were starving in 2005, you didn't actually uh, – well, whether tell us the story yeah, um, about the and money. Actually, you know, to your first point about uh, it being in your blood, I completely agree with Courtney. In fact, I've said the same thing independently, that entrepreneurs tend to be builders. We enjoy building, and that's what's so exciting about what we do, to build something that didn't exist before, and it's a lasting entity. Now, in terms – yes? In terms of funding, uh, in 2005, we, um, you know, had very, very few customers. Uh, we had 
Uh, we were down to four people. We were out of money. We didn't know the first thing about marketing. We didn't know the first thing about going after funding. Nobody would have bet on us. Okay, we were a terrible bet. It, it's absolutely, um, you know, it, it's it's. I wouldn't have put money into my company except that it was mine. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I don't I don't blame the investors that are out there because uh, you know by all indications we were not to be successful. There is a lot to be said for persistence of just figuring it out, changing it, trying something new. If that doesn't work, change it up, do it again. And just that if you keep doing that, if you refuse to fail, at some point you will succeed. Now, of course, these days, you know, we we have a lot of would-be investors that, you know, hear about us. We now have almost 600 clients. Uh, In fact, we probably do have over 600 by now. And these are companies of all sizes, but, you know, many, many name name brands. AT&T and Costco and Boeing and various airlines. I mean, you know, General Mills, lots and lots of companies that you've heard of, lots and lots that you haven't heard of. So now, of course, investors are looking at us going, good grief, they've grown 50% year over year for the last six years. Um, They have a name brand client list, and they fill a niche that very, very few other people can fill. So suddenly that does make us very appealing. However, we... We've looked at taking outside capital a couple of times, but there's something really lovely about being able to be in charge of your own destiny. Um, Rather than having to do things that are short-term, you can take a long-term view. You can work on making your customers really happy. You can build a lot of value into the uh, product that you're building. You can spend a lot to take care of your employees and make sure that they never want to go anywhere else. You can make some you know, decisions without having to check with an investor to see if that's okay. And there's there's tremendous satisfaction in that, in being able to sort of, you know, decide where you're going and how long it's going to take you to get there. So, you know, although we've looked at it any number of times, every time we've come back that, you know, having a little bit of extra money is not worth giving up a lot of control for. That's great advice, I think. But, you know, not... You were, you've been just incredibly successful, which is fantastic in building your business, owning it all, not having to give up any equity or take in any capital. Um, you know, a lot of times with capital and money comes connections and advice. And I wanted to ask both of you, Teresa and Courtney, in tr- about that. You know, how do you build the connections and the advisory board and the people that you can go to to give you some really uh, clever uh, help on navigating the landscape out there. And I would I would say, um, you know, great advisors are worth their weight in gold. And you find those in a variety of ways. Now, I am, I'm, of course, very old for starting a company. I started when I was 40 years old. So, you know, uh, it's, it's, I had built up a number of people that I had met over the years that I respected greatly for their brains and for their experience and their wisdom. Um, so that certainly helps. One of the people that, and Daria, you and I spoke about this earlier, one of the uh, members of my board is a venture capitalist. 
who I got to know um, and really just so much respected his wisdom and had to ask him multiple times to join our board of directors without investing because he has been able to give us advice over the last several years that we could not get at any price from any place that has just uh, saved us from making some terrible mistakes at different times. And, you know, so people that have done this before, people that have worked in these industries, in your industry, you know, um, they can they can very quickly look at what you're doing and point out where the pitfalls are. That's that's the benefit of their experience that most of them are really very willing to offer up. It's it's a wonderful thing. And, and you Courtney, don't have don't to know. yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. So I was Courtney. gonna add, I mean, I agree one hundred percent with what Teresa said because one actually on the other point uh, of giving up control, you know, it really is true. It's money can, you know, raising money can get you connections, but I do think you can get them another way. And that really sometimes having very limited capital breeds the best in terms of, you know, using, sometimes capital can make you lazy. And I know that's not necessarily the problem, that, you know, everyone's overfunded. Um, But really, sometimes being very lean drives people to come up with very creative solutions that you wouldn't have come up with if you had the funding you end up making a lot a lot of expensive mistakes. So actually in the very, very early days, I do think raising less money, we've always raised really the least we needed, not, you know, even though we could have raised a lot more. Because I do think you'll end up having a much more kind of bulletproof business if you start from a place of really having to be very creative and coming up with solutions and not just relying on cash to kind of buy yourself out of solutions or, you know, buy customers, all that, all that kind of stuff. But on the advisor point, the only thing I would add is one thing that I found very effective, and I agree 100%, for me, advisors really are the key, that if you're thinking about, when you think about advisors, think specifically about weaknesses that you have. Just because someone has a name or they're a venture capitalist or, you know, they're very busy people, and they get asked, you know, by a lot of people to do things, and they, too, get something from being able to actually offer you help. In other words, just just having them on because they have a name or – it can be helpful, but it's not nearly as helpful as finding someone that you know fills a specific uh, hole that you have or balances out a weakness you have uh, in your business. I found that to be very helpful because then, you know, the more helpful that the advisor feels, the more help they'll give. You know, they have a choice. They can only do so many things in a day. And, you know, if they feel like they're actually called upon, uh, believe it or not, that actually makes them more invested uh, and not less. So I would just say be sure and think about really specifically what you're trying to accomplish and and go to your uh, list of advisors from that place. April, your firm acts as an advisor to many businesses and uh, typically – the Entrepreneurial Women um, Award that you put together, I've actually, uh, you know, met some of the recipients in the past, and actually Therese was a uh, finalist for one of your previous uh, contests. That um, award gives the startups that are competing or are in the process, and certainly the recipients of the awards, uh, great recognition and, and PR and does that also give them 
what else does it give them other than the recognition and the PR that comes from that? Is there an element of accessing uh, advice and other things like that? Well, sure. So, so Daria, there are, we actually have two programs. So we have our uh, Entrepreneur of the Year program, which is a competitive business award program. This recognizes entrepreneurs, and, and that's it is a competition, and uh, we run that annually. And, and throughout the country, we run it in, in 26 uh, cities throughout the country. And, and that program really does uh, connect um, the, the entrepreneurs. It allows them to both celebrate their success with their teams, they get visibility, um, they get to, to to really enjoy, you know, the opportunity to talk about their company. I've I've met with many entrepreneurs and it's a lot of fun to, to hear them talk about their company, but the, the that program really allows them to uh, celebrate their success and then it connects them with a lot of the uh, financial advisors that are involved in the program as well. We have a lot of uh, uh, firms that are connected with the program. The, the second program is the Entrepreneurial Winning Women program, which is more of a leadership development program for women entrepreneurs, and, it, and it's, it's for the small business, the women, the women who have started these businesses that are you know, in the $1 to $10 million range. And in that program, we're really helping them you know, develop their skills. We, we talk a lot about thinking big, um, setting high expectations, and, and, and really big goals that they might not have otherwise you know, been thinking about, and then connecting them with financial advisors, business advisors, you know, advisors they may not have had access to before, you know, allowing them to think about you know, whether capital is the right uh, thing for them. You know, in this discussion, we've heard from, from, from both Courtney and Therese about whether or not it makes sense to go out and get capital and when the right time is, and that's part of what we do is help a company think through that when does it make sense, and and how do you go about doing that uh, once you decide to to move forward? April, do you have any advice that is in particular uh, suited to female and women entrepreneurs? Well, I, I think I think the first thing is is what I said about you know think big and be bold. You know, uh, we often find that women don't you know don't often set those high expectations and goals and and we really do encourage them to think big and be bold as part of working through our our entrepreneurial winning women program one of the things the output we've heard at the end of the program is is that the goals that women set afterwards were much higher than what they had set before so think big and and be bold set those high expectations you know establish those the key advisory networks make sure you're asking for help, and I, I liked what Courtney said about finding advisors for the for the areas that you might have weaknesses in. I think that is very critical. Um, you know, building a public profi- profile is also important. Making sure that you're getting visibility, and I think finally, the, the the big piece here is sometimes women tend to get involved in the details of the business, and they're working, you know, really in the business. And we often try to encourage women work on the business, work on. How do you grow your business? How are you strategically aligned in the market and and work on the business and growing it and connecting it as opposed to sometimes being in the details of working you know in the business and and doing the do and and so you've got to hire the right team underneath you so that you can you know, work on growing your business yeah i think I, I think that's great advice and you know one of the things that uh you both mentioned is. Uh, uh, Courtney and Teresa's uh, 
other ways that you can find people to connect to. And one of the things that we do at Broad Circle at our events is really focus on trying to bring women uh, across the spectrum together. And so, for example, at the May 22nd event in Los Angeles, uh, that uh, Courtney and Teresa and some others, Susan Feldman from uh, One Kings Lane and Deborah Benton from Nasty Gal and Dana Settle, who's a partner at the VC firm Great Croft LLC, will be speaking, is that we bring these types of women, these leaders, to the table to speak to uh, our audience of local women leaders and they have time to network. They have time to chit-chat after the panel event. Um, not only that, we do roundtable discussions, and to our roundtable discussions, we're bringing this uh, to this event uh, a woman angel, Barbara Boxer, who uh, is an angel investor. Uh, basically, an angel investor is someone who invests in early-stage companies at a personal capital. They're not running a formal fund, but they usually are providing early, very early-stage money. Uh, Monica Doty, who is at the Women's Venture Capital Fund. Monica is building a fund that focuses on uh, funding women entrepreneurs only. Uh, Shadi Mirayan, who is at Rivet Ventures up in the Bay Area, is also working on building a pretty large-scale fund, about $100 million, that will be funding women angel invest women uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, so, you know, all of these things are interesting because one of the things that we talk about when it comes to women and why there are not many more women leading in technology or why there are not more VC-funded companies that are women-led uh, is that, you know, we got to get the right women to the table so that there's conversations and, and, and relationships that allow for the flow of capital. Um, and so, uh, Courtney and Therese, I wanted to ask you, if you had three things that you could share with uh, women entrepreneurs out there, what would they be? What would be your three tips that you've learned? You both are, you have been in the game a long time, building your business now or previous businesses. So what are the three tips that, what's the advice that you would give a woman entrepreneur? Courtney, let's start with you. Well, uh, one of mine actually would be would be the advisors. I think, especially in the early stage, that that's critical in getting some core feedback. Um, I would make sure that you you know that you you're working on something that's a real problem, right? That it's not just oh, I want to start a business, but you really found a problem that you know is in need of solving because that is really what will drive growth and will allow you to do more organic growth so that you don't need to raise as much money, et cetera. Um, and I think really knowing the numbers, because this is something I have seen consistently <clears throat> would be not knowing a little bit less about the numbers or being intimidated by understanding the numbers uh, that drive a company. So I would say if you don't have that background, if you don't understand the fundamentals, you know, of, you know, the balance sheet and cash flow and that you take the time to really invest in working with, you know, a CFO, 
not a full-time CFO, but really just finding someone who would sit with you and help get you educated about the fundamentals um, because that's a place where I see a lot of people skipping over, and it really can make the difference because when you try to raise money, um, you know, the fact that I know so well the fundamentals of my business inside and out is what, is what creates trust. And people are investing, not even in your idea. They re- it is true that they're investing in you. You sit down to have a meeting, and if someone responds to you, they give you money. And if, you, if your presence sort of speaks of trust and credibility, and, you know, I do something that's pretty unusual, um, or at least I hear from my investors it's unusual, and every quarter I send out a very detailed report to all of my investors. And I talk about the good news, and then I talk about the bad news, right, what we didn't do right, the mistakes we made. And so every time I go back to raise more money, it's two phone calls and it's done because they, trust, they know that I'm going to be very transparent with them. You know, I think you just you don't want to hide from the bad news, and I know it's hard sometimes. You don't want to share, oh, I didn't do this right. But really I, I, would, I would encourage you to really know the fundamentals of your business, and the more that you do that, the more confident you'll be and the more likely you will be not only to raise money but to be able to continue to raise money because you will have the confidence uh, of your investors. Well, before I let Teresa jump in on that, I wanted to jump in on that because I think you said something really important there, Courtney, because, you know, people are giving you money. They don't care about your gender. They are giving you money because you are going to make them money. And the fact that you know the numbers uh, gives them comfort that you understand how you're going to deliver on that uh, that that concept of making them money. Yeah, I think it's very true. I think it's so, and I think this gets missed, and sometimes we think, oh, there's a gender bias, when it might be that there's a, a learning bias that then re- gets reflected as a gender bias, if that makes sense. So that a lot of times you don't know the information or are afraid to get the information or weren't taught the information, and then you don't get the money and you think, oh, it was because I was a woman. Well, it's not. It's because you don't know the things that would give the investor confidence, and maybe they see that more frequently with women. So I would just encourage that. I really do think it's so critical. Uh, I, I was very fortunate. I worked at General Motors right out of college. Um, I did a this two-year internship with them, and at the time the CFO was a woman. At General Motors, right? I mean, this is like, you know, it was pretty revolutionary. It's like 1991, 1992. But she was so respected. And the reason why, she knew her stuff. She really did. So, so I would say I see that as a, as a place that we could all do better on and more education on understanding the numbers side of the business, not just marketing, not just uh, would be helpful and would give people confidence. And that's what leads to, to you know, investment dollars. Well, I'm a girl who loves numbers, and I love other women who know the numbers. So I, I'm all for that. And, Therese, you're you a woman who knows the numbers. Oh, go ahead, Courtney. Sorry. You know, I was just going to say one thing. It's not – I just want to add this because I'm not saying that you have to love – I mean, I do too. I happen to love the numbers. I just want to encourage people that it's actually even more important if you don't. In other words, if you're intimidated by that, that is the first thing you want to try to understand. And just have someone help you. It doesn't have to be expensive. Get a friend. Uh, you know, there are people, CFOs who work by the hour, you know, that can just sit with you, you know, for 20 hours until you just learn some, some, some basics and really uh, get that solid. So I just wanted to add that. I think for people who actually don't love the numbers, it's even more important. Therese, you're you're a woman who's comfortable with uh, numbers, engineering, computer science. Uh, 
give us your tips. Uh, some of these are, you know, obviously the first one is get great advisors. But um, some of these are, others are, are almost corollaries to some of the things that uh, Courtney said earlier and uh, about having very little money to burn drives efficiency. And so around that, the first thing that I would say would be focus on making happy customers. If people love what you are providing for them, they will talk about it all day long you will have more free marketing, more word-of-mouth buzz than you could ever buy. So if you, are, if you are truly providing value to your customers and you're making them happy, they will tell others like you would not believe. And likewise, if you're making them unhappy, that spreads too. And in any given community, at least in the business world, uh, for example, the accounting community, it is surprisingly small. We will have... Um, you know, a customer, a, a staff accountant that leaves Chrysler and goes to LensCrafters and goes, you guys, you guys need to use Blackline. And pretty soon we're getting a phone call. So having happy customers, focusing on that, I think is a very important key to success. Um, number two, when give priority to activities that generate revenue. Okay. Now, within the software world, uh, you, you tend to have a you – Programmers, programmers love to program just for the sake of programming. So it's very easy for people to get off course on this. So we used to always have a rule. Before you go off and start creating something, ask yourself if this is something that people would actually pay for. Okay, so focus on revenue-generating activities because otherwise you'll find that, you know, you might do all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, if you're not producing revenue, you're not going to be in business that long. And number three, don't skimp on legal advice when it comes to contracting. Okay, it, sometimes we shy away from lawyers because they charge hundreds of dollars an hour for, you know, help in any given area. But there are some real pitfalls if you're not familiar with the legal system. There are, or frankly, uh, California's approach to employee law. You can very rapidly, without any intention whatsoever, get into hot water if you don't comply with certain things, if you don't have good contracts with your customers. Those are very important things that could absolutely sink a business if you're, you know, penny wise and pound foolish. There's three. Okay. Those are, those are, that's great advice. There's a book or two or three in what you just said, or if not more. So, you know, I, I want to shift gears now and talk about you, we all are women who are engaged really at the top levels of business. We're all aggressive. We're all competitive. And uh, we, I'm sure – have, uh, and many of our listeners may have heard about the Lean In, Sheryl Sandberg Dialogue. There's another book, Not in the Boys Club by Janet Pacino. Uh, this dialogue about women and what women need to do to get ahead, what women need to be aware of in kind of understanding and molding their environment for success. 
And one of the things that's really important to me and other people who are engaged in Broad Circle is uh, I always tell this story of the fact that I have a young daughter. She's nine years old. And um, one of the things I hope is that kind of the battle of equal pay, equal representation, equal capital is over by the time she gets to be a, a, a young woman. And so there has been a lot of uh, writing about that, that the lean-in conversation, Janet Pacino, not in the Boys Club conversation, I see as part of that conversation. The dialogue goes on because there's there are other women who feel that the work isn't done, right? So if you look at the S&P 500 companies, uh, corporate board representation, only 16% are women, but if you look at the trend line of how more women will get on those boards, it'll be 33 more years before the largest companies in the United States will have corporate boards that are equal women to men in their ratios. 33 more years, that means my nine-year-old will be 42 years old. Uh, so that's another generation that will be kind of, you know, dealing with these issues. But so... Give me some thoughts on that. I know you've thought about mentoring, bringing up other young women, uh, finding ways to kind of address some of these issues. The work isn't done. Uh, I know, Courtney, you talked to me about mentoring some young women. You were mentored, obviously, from this with the CFO uh, that you work with earlier or in your career. Give us some thoughts on that, please. Well, yeah, I was extremely lucky. And, you know, my first job was working for Ann Richards, the former governor of Texas, who was uh, an extremely powerful uh, leader in her own right. And that was, you know, quite quite early. Um, yeah, I, it's interesting. I was at dinner last night, actually, with uh, all of my employees. And as I mentioned to you, I have three or four young women uh, that work at the company who I adore, and I really consider it, part of my mission and obligation to help equip them with all the tools uh, that they would need to, if they're so inclined, to be a CEO, to raise money, to, to do all those things. And she said to me, one, one of the women said to me, you know, it's funny because in my generation, we don't, I don't think it occurs to me that I would not get to do those things. But I think it's because she's at an earlier stage. And I remember feeling that way. I didn't really experience, um, I didn't feel like I was held back but that's also because, and I think I mentioned this to you, I chose sales as a path, and I think it's a very good starting place for a lot of reasons. We're always selling, even if we're not in sales technically, you know, we're trying to represent ourselves or we want to accomplish something, and it's sort of undeniable. If you're successful in sales, the numbers don't lie, and you can't be denied, you know, the benefits of that if you if you perform. But I think as you get higher up is where it starts to flatten out a little bit, um, but it might just be a volume issue. It might just be that we didn't have as many, you know, in my generation, we didn't have as many women taking the path that I took that set you up sort of, I think, better to being able to move into that CEO role. And I think the pool will be much bigger now. I do. Even before your daughter's generation, I think the generation between the women that are, you know, 20, between 20 and 25, 26, 27, I think we will see a jump as they move into their mid-30s and have the experience, you know, to move into that, that CEO role. And so I just tell them really what we just talked about, right? I Make sure you guys really learn numbers. Don't just learn sort of the, 
the outward-facing part of the business. Learn about technology. Learn how to code. You know, there are a lot of things that you could do that would equip yourself um, to be undeniably attractive to investors, to VCs, you know, uh, folks like that. Great. Therese, did you have any thoughts on that? I do think that this um, upcoming generation is definitely better suited to run things, the upcoming generation of girls. For one thing, uh, technology is much more accessible to them. Uh, they, they sit down and they program their smartphones when they're, you know, seven years old. Okay, they it, it's not sort of the big scary thing that keeps them from playing with the boys on the technology side. So I'm very encouraged by that. I am still appalled at the very, very small numbers of women in college now that actually major in something like computer science. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, it's pitiful. It, it's we mm-hmm. cannot find female programmers. I uh, I tease my guys out here all the time. Like, all right, you can't hire any more programmers unless you bring me women, okay? Because it's just so <laughs> unbalanced in terms of the overall numbers. So you know that that is still discouraging. I think a lot of it is how uh, technology and computer science is taught in the universities. It, it's taught in a way that is. Um, it doesn't relate to how to solve real-life problems. And my initial, I was very fortunate, and my initial programming class was taught by somebody who had us do really fun problem solutions. And my attention was caught by how useful technology could be when it was implemented properly. Subsequently, I had nothing but, you know, very math-oriented, very algorithm-oriented programming classes, and I remember saying to myself, you know, this can be fun if I can just get through this degree process, and it it absolutely has been a blast, but I don't think it's taught in a way that makes it appealing to women, and I, I wish I knew how to change that. You know, I'm I'm hoping that it will change. Not sure yet. I mentor where I can. I think that that's very important. But on a wide scale, I don't know how to make technology something that more women look at and go, Yeah, I could I could have a fabulous career in that area. Yeah. Well, you know, there there are signs of hope in what you both said, though. Um, I think, Courtney, what you said about revenue is so key, and it's really our mantra at Broad Circle. We start every meeting. We are all about money and power for women, driving revenue, growing capital. Revenue is key. And, you know, perhaps, Therese, with these younger kids coming up who can program their phones, that technology uh, barrier will kick away uh, as they get to be um, college age. I know, April, you and I talked about the fact that uh, your kids are learning how to code at a young age, but are you feeling that um, the um, the young people coming into Ernst & Young, the young women, uh, do you feel that they are – uh, ready for leadership, leaning in, and all that. You know, it's interesting because in in the accounting services, professional services firms, we're seeing as many women coming in as men. In fact, it's probably a little more than fifty percent of our new hires are women, and so that the dialogue is really about helping them, you know, stay and grow to the leadership positions. And we do that through you know mentoring. We identify those high performing women, those those women with potential to lead, 
and and we start mentoring them early so that we can, you know, continue to see them grow. And, you know, that's one of the things I'm also very passionate about is making sure that I take the time as a working, you know, tax partner with two children um, that I, you know, spend time with the, the younger women and talk about, how I am doing it all, <laughs> which, you know, we all know that it's not perfect, but I talk about, you know, what, what, what I'm doing to make this work and, and try to give them tips and perspective because a lot of times I think they, that the younger women don't just have the bigger perspective of, okay, you've got to give some things and you've got to shift and you have to be very flexible. But the, uh, but the technology is allows us to be more flexible. And that's one of the big pieces of advice I give younger women is, Take advantage of the technology that exists and let it, uh, you know, help you be flexible so that you can achieve your career goals as well as your family goals. You know, I wanted to, we just have a few more minutes left, and I wanted to wrap up our dialogue with really talking about Los Angeles and what a great environment for technology it is now, how excited we all are, and how we want to make sure that we nourish uh, the uh, ecosystem of, for technology and also women's leadership that's evolving in Los Angeles. Julie, you are at a company that has grown up in Santa Monica yeah, and gone public. And uh, could you? Did you have any thoughts about the LA tech scene and uh, what uh, what we're seeing, what we hope to see? Sure. And I think uh, you know, having these women on this panel is, is, a, is a, a hopefully one or two of them may eventually go public. <laughs> and with the Jobs Act making that easier, I think for companies, we'll hope, hope, hope to facilitate more initial public offerings in Los Angeles. I, I do think it feels like the momentum is on the very small end right now, and so it may take a little while. Um, you know, As we discussed earlier, that the, the funding seems to be coming for these startups, and the question is how many more years till we have some significant what they call exits or public offerings. So I do think there's strong benefits to um, being a publicly traded company in terms of growth and attracting and retaining employees. Um, so I am hopeful that a percentage of these startups do become eventually uh, publicly traded companies that have large numbers of employees in the Los Angeles area. Great. Well, Courtney and Therese, April and Julie, thank you so much. We have a few minutes, and I wanted to just wrap up the conversation here again with talking about the fact that, first of all, thank you to Sylvia Global for being a forum for uh, creating a, a forum for and creating a venue for. Uh, connecting women, talking about these issues. Broad Circle is all about money and power for women, driving revenue and growing capital. Our event coming up is Women of Silicon Beach. It's on May 22nd. It's at the Lux on Sunset, 4 to 7 p.m. Uh, and our terrific panel of Courtney Nichols-Gold, co-founder and CEO of Smarty Pants Vitamins, Therese Tucker, CEO and founder of Blackline Systems, April Spencer of Ernst & Young, Julie McMeadon of Demand Media will be joined by Dana Settle, a founding partner with Greycroft LLC, Susan Feldman of One Kings Lane, and Deborah Benton from Nasty Gal. Again, Broad Circle can be found at broadcircle.com. Please go to our website and take a look at our offerings. We have a little bit of exciting, uh, a little exciting game that we're going to start playing starting next week called Chicks. Starter.com and with chickstarter.com, 
It's like a mini Kickstarter campaign where we're going to raise gift money, basically, for a Silicon Beach woman-led company that we will be um, looking for via an application program between uh, April 22nd and October 24th when our Silicon Beach 2 event will be going on. So if you are a Silicon Beach female entrepreneur, go on to chickstarter.com and take a look at that application starting next week. Broadcircle.com is where you'll find our site, you'll find our event, and uh, that will be where you can register for Women of Silicon Beach, May 22nd, 4 to 7 p.m., Lock Sunset Hotel, uh, in Los Angeles, and thank you to Sylvia Global. Thank you very much, panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye.